Hey, welcome to the Health Coaches Podcast. I'm one of your co-hosts, Howard Jacobson. Before we get to today's episode, a question. Would you like to become a wicked effective health coach to help people change their behaviors, change their habits, change their health destinies, and to be able to do it through a reliable process, one that works every time? If so, I'd invite you to check out the WellStart Health Coach Training Academy. And you can find it at wellstartcoach.com. And you can check and see when we're running our next training course. All right, let's get to today's topic. Sharon McRae, welcome to the Health Coaches Podcast. Thank you, Howard. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, so I've learned a lot from you over the years. Uh, I've had you on the podcast on Plant Yourself, my, uh, my other podcast, which you were, uh, I think, a couple times in which you're really helpful in helping families transition to a healthier way of eating, a plant forward, whole food way of eating. And I know that you have been a food for life instructor, which means like that's like the best job in the world, right? Like you get to wear the apron, you yep. get, you get you stand you stand up in front of a group of people who are salivating as you cook healthier and more delicious food than they've ever had. And then yep. they just go home. And from that moment on, they're 100% whole food plant based forever, right? If only, if only. <laughs> yeah. No, I'm afraid not. There have been maybe one or two you know, over the years. But no, I'd say the majority not so fast. Right. So that's what I wanted to talk to you about, about how what you've seen as the, the obstacles specifically around people adopting a new dietary pattern. And you know, as I, I guess as individuals, but also like your thing, I think, is sort of as families, right, as a, as a moving as a unit. So I'd love to. Well, I'd love a, to, yeah. a lot of clients are uh, in family situations, but I do work with a lot of one on one people who live alone, too. OK, great. So I'd love to start by just asking you, like, what do you see as the obstacles for, for people to change their diet once you've given them the, mo you know, the motivation, the tools the recipes, and yet people still struggle. What, what do you see as the big obstacles? Number one, I think, is fear of deprivation, fear of change. Uh, a lot of people think that, well, I know I need to make this change. I need to feel better, but I, I'm going to miss this pizza and beer night so much. And what will I do? And, you know, so there's that. There's also, as you said, families, because a lot of times the people that I work with are in a family situation where family members are not on board at all. And the foods that are not in their best interest are still in the home. Mm -hmm. And our friend Chef AJ always says, and I truly believe if it's in your house, it's in your mouth. And even if you're able to resist it in the moment, you will eventually go out somewhere and get access to that food and give in. Uh, so so that's a big issue is the environment, cultural situations, religious situations. I mean, food is in everything. Food is ubiquitous. It's part of every aspect of life. And so to imagine someone sitting at a Thanksgiving table for the first time and not having turkey with everyone, you know, or uh, Easter ham or whatever the celebration is where food is a part of it and they're suddenly not eating that food anymore. That's a big issue. And then in terms of family situations, a lot of times I work with parents and, you know, trying to get their kids more healthfully. One of the things I find that can be an obstacle is they personally have fond memories of eating certain foods hmm. or connections 
certain foods from their childhood and they don't want to deprive their child. So they indulge their child in these things thinking, oh, I'm a good parent now. Um, but really it's not in the child's best interest in terms of health. Mm. So those are some of the, the ones that stick out in my mind the most. Cool. So let's, uh, I love it. There's, I, I've got four of them. So there's the deprivation mindset. There's the family environment, both the social environment and access to the food. There's cultural traditions and then fond memories from their own childhoods. Um, yeah, the last one is funny because like, you know, I have very fond memories of girlfriends that I would not want to go out with again. But it doesn't it doesn't mean I have to like, you know, trash them or hate them. Right. But let's let's start with deprivation, because that seems to be very, very common. And it's a way of, it, you know, the way you said the way you even described how they talk about it is like, well, I need to do this, but I'm going to miss this. So how do you help people navigate this feeling like, OK, I'm, I'm I have to be good and it means the end of joy? Well, what I try to convey to them at first is. Look, I understand because I didn't make the change overnight. I understand that change is always frightening. But what you need to understand is that this way of eating does not mean deprivation. It actually means the opposite of deprivation. So I enjoy my food now more than I ever did before. I don't know about you. Uh, mm -hmm. I personally enjoy eating now more than I ever did. And I always loved food. Mm -hmm. But the food that I eat now is just so varied. You know, I'm eating all these different, we love in our home, we love Indian food and Mexican food and there's Thai and there's all these different ethnic type dishes, all these different spices. I mean, if you go into the grocery store and you walk down the bulk food aisle, look at how many different spices there are, how many different legumes there are, how many different grains there are. Whereas if you walk into the meat department, how many different types of meat are there? Right. It's all all right, but, but, I'm, but I'm imagining when you do a, when you do a, a cooking class that you give people that message, right? That you show them all these, and and yet they still have a deprivation mindset, which is not rational, right? So we can't argue about it rationally because they know, right? So what are, what are right. some what are like? So that, yeah, go ahead. That's where the that's where the cooking classes are wonderful because they actually get to see me prepare and then they get to taste it, and. You know, the dishes that PCRM provides the recipes for in the Food for Life curriculum are wonderful. And so they get to taste all these wonderful flavors and see these different types of foods that they can prepare easily. So they get to taste it. The other thing I do in my community, it's a thing of the past right now, which is very sad, but um, I run a meetup group called the Columbia, Maryland Forks and Knives Meetup Group. We have almost 2,000 members. We would meet monthly for potlucks. And so at the potlucks, everyone is encouraged, of course, to bring a plant-based dish. Mm -hmm. And so people would get exposed to, oh, my gosh, this food is amazing. You know, you see this wide variety of foods. And the other thing I would do is hold meetups at local restaurants. Generally speaking, the most open restaurants for us were the ethnic restaurants. So we have an Ethiopian place, Chinese place, Indian places. So people would get to taste all these different delicious meals. And suddenly they realize, oh, this isn't so bad. You know, I'm not really going to miss you know, and then if they tell me they're going to, what do they do about cheese? Well, we can talk about all these wonderful cheese substitutes and you can make a cheese sauce out of potatoes and cashews and nutritional yeast. If they're talking about missing ice cream, we talk about making frozen banana and ice cream. Mm -hmm. You know, so it's almost trying to find substitutions that are tasty 
and easy to make for their favorite food so that they can see that, you know, it's really, you can make bacon out of an, an eggplant right now. It's not really the, the dead pig fat that you're missing. It's the flavoring. And you can do that with healthy foods that taste delicious and feed your body well. The other thing I do is I encourage them to get in touch with how their bodies feel after they eat certain foods. You know, occasionally I'll be working with a client for many years and they'll have a slip. And I'll say, well, how did you feel after eating that pizza? And they realize, you know, it really, first of all, it didn't taste that good. And second of all, it didn't make me feel good. I was tired. I was lethargic. I was gassy. I had indigestion, acid reflux, whatever they're experiencing. So I have them tune in. How did you feel after you ate that delicious lentil stew, you know, with a big salad? I felt great. I had lots of energy, you know, because as you know, when you eat this way, you get to feel good too. And so it becomes about focusing on the reward of feeling better. And then when they start to see pain decreasing and dependence on medications decreasing and their energy levels going up and their clarity of mind increases, when they start to see these positive benefits, then suddenly it becomes a, you know, risk mm -hmm. reward. Like what is the real risk of up this food versus what rewards do I have to gain by starting to think about food differently? Mm, I love that. And you know, one of the things I learned from um, Glenn Livingston, who wrote a book called Never Binge Again, is that you foc you stick with deprivation, but you focus them on what are they depriving of themselves of by not changing to a healthier diet? It's like, would you like to, you know, are you, do you want to deprive yourself of energy, of a pain-free existence, of a waistline that feels comfortable to you, of, right? So, so that, yeah, so we're, you know, if you're if someone's in a deprivation mindset, it really is it can be very resistant to evidence like, yeah, 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 this is all great. But I feel like I'm I still feel like I'm missing things, partly, I think, because people adopt healthy diets out of self-punishment. True. Right. Like so someone comes to your class and you are you are teaching and preaching joy and abundance, but they're there because they, they think they need to self-flagellate. We yes, have we have to bridge that gap somehow. Yeah, there is a lot of that. And, you know, the motivation is something I do focus on when I first start working with clients is I, I try to get at their why. You know, I've heard uh, it was Dr. Roseanne Olivia Oliviero mm -hmm. says, find the why that makes you cry. Mm -hmm. yeah. So I try to get them to come into contact with what is their why. And oftentimes the first time I ask someone, they don't really know. They'll give me a cursory answer like, well, my doctor said my blood pressure or my cholesterol is too high and I really need to fix that. Well, why do you want to fix that? Why is it important to you? What things in your life do you want to be able to do? that you wouldn't be able to do if you were to get ill. And so finding that motivation and then constantly focusing on that, bringing them back to that in every conversation that we have, you know, how is that in line with your goal of being there for your daughter's wedding or, you know, whatever it is for them, constantly bringing them back to that and having them focus on that helps them again to, to make the right changes. Another strategy I use with my clients, I'm a huge believer in meditation I say it in almost every conversation I have. Um, but I really think a lot of people are, for lack of a better term, people pleasers. And they're always putting other people's needs and wants ahead of their own. And so they never really get a time to tune in 
to who they really are and what they really want and their real goals. But meditation allows you to do that. It allows you to tune in to your soul, that inner voice that speaks to you, just block out with all that noise. So I encourage all of my clients to at least start with a guided meditation, at least five minutes a day, just a way to get grounded. And that helps them make decisions throughout the day that keep them in line with their goals. Mm, love that. Love that. All right, so let's move on to the second one. So to, uh, to you know, you're living in your household, and there's people who are maybe you know not on board, or maybe even threatened by your changes. And even if they're on board, and they, but they don't change, you've got the in your you know in your house in your mouth. So do you, you know what's the solution? Do you tell people to like get divorced and move out, or? Well, sometimes no. Oftentimes. There are underlying issues, and I do suggest that they work with therapists because in all honesty, well, what I encourage first is to have the conversation. You know, in, in a lot of cases, it's with the spouse or the partner. Have the conversation. Look, I am interested in trying to make changes in my diet so that I can improve my health so that I can be here to my fullest for this family. Mm -hmm. um, will you support me in this? And what this means is that I want all of the you know, the animal products, the processed food to, to go away or to at least be out of my sight. And, you know, you can do whatever you want outside of the house, but would you mind keeping the house a clean environment? Now, there's a lot of pushback often. And so, you know, I think part of it is educating your, your spouse, your partner, educating them, sharing with them some of the information that you might see in a movie like Forks over knives, what the health, the game changers, what information have you learned that has inspired you? to want to make this change, number one. Number two, maybe sharing podcasts like yours, you know, where you're sitting and listening together or books on Audible. There's so many resources. So just educating them. And then I always encourage my clients to come at it from a place of love. You know, so it's not a control issue. It's not I am dictating that all of this food be taken out of the house. That's what I did in my house, but that's just who I am. But I encourage people to come from a place of love. You know, I love you and I want you to be here with me for the rest of my life. I want us to grow old together. And I think this will be a healthy change for you, too. So you come in at a place from love, you educate. And from there, if there's still pushback, the only other thing that really is left is to have strategies. And I know Chef AJ came up with this one for her ultimate weight loss people. But, you know, you have a lockbox. A lock and uh, the foods that are tempting, enticing, addictive to that person, they can put in the lockbox and it's out of sight. Mm -hmm. I will say that my clients who do the best are obviously the ones in which they have a supportive household, right? So the, the house is clean. My clients who tend to struggle the most are the ones who have families who are just absolutely resistant, make fun of them, you know, laugh at them, rebel any chance they get, try to tempt them, try to derail them. They struggle a lot. And I wish I knew the answer. I have talked to Dr. Doug Lyle about this. I do not know what the answer is. If you have it, I'd love to hear it. But I really don't know what the answer is because I truly believe as long as you have that kind of tension in the house and that food constantly, well, fake food, constantly in your presence, it's almost impossible to make that change 100%. So at that point, maybe what the person needs to do is step back and say, what can I do in this environment? You know, maybe when I'm out of the house, I can eat as clean as I want. I can try to cook for myself, but I have to be realistic mm -hmm. about what I can do in the house. Right. So, I, yeah. So I, I wrote down, the, I guess, 
five different strategies. Um, so I, I can respond to them. I, I, I love the first thing you said, which was, let's deal with the underlying issues, mm -hmm. right? So that it's almost never about the thing that it's about, right? Exactly. The conversation, okay. the fight that I have with my wife about, you know, cleaning the garage is not about the garage. It's about how we communicate and the assumptions we bring. And, and so if there, you know, if there is that kind of environment in which I can't talk about it, right? First of all, that's an assumption. Second of all, talk. If you can't talk about this, I guarantee there's 30 other things that you can't talk about. Mm -hmm. Hey, Dave. What is it? <laughs> What was it? It's Howard Jacobson. Oh, hey, Howard. Sorry. Hey, good to Sorry. see you. Turning my glasses on. I didn't you can edit you. that out. Oh, Sorry. why? Why? This is real life. This is real life. I this, told you I have a small home. This is, yeah, it is, you know, Skype in the time of Corona. This is like. Right. He's wearing clothes, you know, it could have been worse. Jimmy Fallon has his little kids running across the screen for the Tonight Show broadcast. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Um, <laughs> you know, so. So for a lot of people like this is, you know, you talk about people being people pleasers, right? We are all addicted to approval. Absolutely. Like that's our programming. And so even if you don't change your diet, if you break your addiction to needing everybody else to like you, and I'm speaking about myself as much as anyone else, like this is an, an opportunity. It's an opening to a whole different relationship because very often, you know, in a family system, Everyone is holding back. And if one person does something brave and vulnerable and speaks a truth and speaks not in terms of I'm going to criticize you or complain or, you know, teach you and be superior. But I'm coming to you from a place of, of as you said, love and vulnerability to just, you know, be willing to have the conversation, even though it's scary. Um, I think that's actually more important for our for our overall health than what we're eating. Totally. And, you know, I recently discovered I don't know if you know her Tara Brock. Yeah. Do you know who she is? I love I, she, I love her her um, yeah, her work. Yes. Yeah, she's got a wonderful podcast and she, her whole discussion is about self-compassion. Right. Mm -hmm. Right. So she has um, an acronym called RAIN, which is recognize whatever it is you're feeling, acknowledge it, allow it to be there. Um, it's the I investigate. Where do you feel it in your body? Put your hand on that place. And then N is nurture, nurture it. And I think self-compassion is something a lot of people struggle with. They really, really struggle. They don't like themselves. Maybe it has to do with their childhood. Maybe it has to do with what they've heard in their head all their lives. I don't know. But a lot of people struggle with self-compassion. And so they're very, very hard on themselves. And they don't believe they're worthy of, you know, whatever it is that life holds for them if they begin to make changes and get healthier. So that's a big struggle, too, for people. Mm. And I try to I try to turn my clients now that I found Tara onto her to listen to her and just learn that technique and that self-love. Because like you said, we are all addicted to approval. And, you know, I'll be very honest and transparent here. I've struggled with the time of the COVID shutdown, because everything I have done in my work, except for my online coaching has been in person, right? So I've done all these online or in-person cooking classes and in-person meetups and in-person uh, conferences that I co-hosted. And suddenly I can't do that anymore. 
And so I'm looking at all these other people throwing their hat in the ring with their cooking classes and their, you know, their programs. And, and I just, I've been kind of overwhelmed by it. And it's not so much, part of it is the approval thing, like you said, but like, what if people don't like what I have to offer? More of it is, uh, I don't want to be just another voice out there. So I kind of struggle with that myself. So I definitely understand it in other people is what mm -hmm. I'm trying to say. Right. But it's, yeah. we are addicted to that. We all do want the approval. I mean, that, I think that's just a genetic, that's how our minds work. You know, that would be in our best interest for survival. Yeah. Yeah. And so to be able to, uh, to shake things up, to take a risk to, right. of conflict, to say, I, I want this to change and not, not, and the, this doesn't have to be, I want you to throw out the bacon, but I want us to be able to discuss our needs openly without threatening each other. Like that's seismic. It's huge. Yeah, it is. So the next thing I wrote down is, you know, to educate them. And mm -hmm. I think that's a double edged sword. I think there are so many ways. And I'm again, I'm going to hold my own hand up that I educate people in ways that are the equivalent of bopping them on the head with a frying pan repeatedly. Right. Like if I'm educating them from a position of I know more than you, you've got to read this book, you've got to listen to this. We get so much resistance, yes. like, like like, you know, if my if I want my wife to read a book, I have to get somebody else to recommend it to her because she'll resist. <laughs> my, right. So to do it in, in terms of and, and we see this really done well in a lot of the documentaries. Right. The, yes. the, the documentaries are not the narrator saying, I am smarter than you and here's what you should know. The documentaries are, hey, look what I'm discovering. Right. Whether it's forks over knives, it's Lee Fulkerson being overweight and diseased and going, oh, my God. Right. So that we can follow his story or James Wilkes and the Game Changers saying, I was injured. I didn't know what to do. I wanted to heal myself. So I started studying and oh, my God, look what I found. So that they're, you know, so what we can do is a little bit of the jujitsu where we're not opposing them, but we're facing that, you know, we're we're shoulder to shoulder and saying, I'm learning some crazy stuff here. And I know I know Doug Lyle, you know, talks a lot about that in terms of the, his strategies of, you know, was it getting along without going along? Yeah, exactly. You know, uh, you were at Summerfest. I don't know if you were there ever and saw Dr. Milton Mills. Uh-huh. So he did a talk one year talking about veganism and he used an analogy that has stuck with me for years and I use it all the time. But what he said was, imagine you're sitting in a dark movie theater and someone comes in and just suddenly turns on the lights. What do you do? Hmm. Open your eyes, right? Yeah, right? But if you very gradually raise the lights, then your eyes have time to adjust. Hmm. Same thing in talking to your family, talking to your friends about veganism or about the plant-based diet very gradually you say, like you said, hey, you leave the stuff I'm hearing. I just watched this movie last night. It was absolutely mind numbing. You want to watch it with me? But it's a very gradual thing. A lot of times people feel when you start to talk to them, like you said, they, you know, they just completely shut down. But they also feel like there's a moral superiority issue. Like I'm doing this thing and I'm better than you because I'm doing it and I know it's the right thing. So you really have to be careful. And that's what he talks about in uh, Dr. Mm -hmm. Lyle about uh, getting along without going along. You can't come at it from that perspective. You just say, hey, I learned this and I'm trying it and I feel really good. You know, it's, it's like been amazing for me. And, you know, 
necessarily put pressure. Now, I, I have to say that I'm an exception in this situation. I happen to be uh, a warrior for health. And my husband knew that when he married me. And my kids knew that from birth. And so when I learned this information, it was overnight. It was, hey, folks, this is how we're doing things in this house. I had just lost my mother to cancer. cancer. Mm -hmm. So there were serious reasons for doing it. But my husband was very open, and he learned right along with me. He did not make the change right away, but he was very respectful. He did not eat animal products. At the time, we were still eating some processed food. But he didn't eat animal products at all in the home. And when we would go out, he would eat the way that I was for solidarity for the family. Um, but it took time for him to get it. You know, it took time for him to come around. But it was a gradual thing, and I kept sharing with him. And even today, if I listen to one of your podcasts, for example, and it's a great interview, I'll say, hey, Dave, you should really listen to this with me. Because he eats this way, and he's 100% a believer. But I know that if I left town for a few days and someone handed him one of these, you know, highly processed vegan cookie whatever things, he mm -hmm. would probably eat it. Mm -hmm. You know, so keep driving home for him. You know, he has uh, three uh, first degree family relatives who have had cancer. His father recently died of cancer. His mother's a colon cancer survivor and he's a brother who had dealing with cancer. So for him, it's even more serious for me. It's both of my parents. My mom died of cancer. My father is a kidney cancer survivor. So we have it all through the family. Mm -hmm. And this has been my reason for wanting to make this change for my family. That doesn't work for most people. Um, Chef AJ and I have this joke like she and I are probably the two biggest B words in the whole country. Um, but, but I wouldn't recommend that most people are like that with their families. However, when I say I was like that, I came from love, you know, and I explained to my kids why suddenly I was taking away their favorite cheese. Um, they were raised vegetarian, but they ate a lot of cheese and they loved it. When I had to explain it to them, I came from a place of love. I didn't say this is how we're doing it. And you know, you're not going to get it anymore. I explained to them why we were doing it. So that's what I encourage people to do. And educate kids too, you know, depending on age, of course. My kids were probably, let's see, they were 10 and 6 when they transitioned. And I showed them the movie uh, Educated. I don't know if you saw that one. But it was kind of a light, you know, vegetable. Yeah, it was like three, three, three people being guided to the, through the transition. Yeah, I remember it. But they had, there was one scene in there where they took the, the people through a deserted um, slaughterhouse. Mm -hmm. And it was graphic. And I knew that. You know, my kids were young teens at the time. And I knew it was going to be harsh for them. And I let them be exposed to it because I wanted them to come at this not only from the health standpoint, because that doesn't necessarily mean much to younger people, but to see the animal cruelty, you know, the yeah. morality that was involved. I wanted them to get it on every angle. So educate not just from one perspective, but also from all yeah. perspectives because yeah. it really is environmental. It, you know, it has so many different facets. Yeah. Well, I remember the phone call from the neighbor um, in tears that my daughter, who was, I want to say, nine at the time, asked her friend why her mother didn't love her, that she wanted to give her cancer by giving her milk. Yeah. So yeah. <laughs> there's collateral damage to, uh, to the strategy. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, the other thing I wanted to talk about is the, the lockbox, because um, I think I do have a different perspective than than uh, Chef AJ on that. And I don't believe if it's in your house, it's in your mouth unless you, you know, if you believe it, then it's true. Um, I think you can create a mental lockbox. And like one of the things we don't 
want to do is, you know, there's a saying you can either carpet the world or wear shoes. Mm -hmm. And so we don't want to like people come in and, and they, again, they think it's going to be all about deprivation. They also think oh, I can never go to the break room at work. I can never hang out at the bar, watch the game with my, because there's going to be beer and wings and donuts in the break room. And so one of the things that I teach people is essentially it's a, a cognitive behavioral technique of uh, exposure therapy. Right. So that you mm -hmm. you build you you create a rule such that you identify things as, as not food. Right. You probably have like rubbing alcohol, 70 percent isopropyl alcohol in your house. But just because exactly. it's in your house doesn't mean it's in your mouth. Exactly. Right. So no, you, you can. You can yeah. attribute, you can say, you know, this stuff is not for humans or it's not for this human. Right. Well, one of the things I teach my clients is always, 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 always read the ingredients. If you want to pick up that Oreo cookie and put it in your mouth, you can do that. But I want you to read the package first. I want you to read the ingredients first. And a lot of times once they start doing that, they realize, like you said, this really isn't food. And I'll say to them, mm -hmm. to me, that's art. You know, when I see a, a display in a bakery, for example, to me, that's art. It's, it's mm -hmm. pretty to look at, but I wouldn't put it into my body, you know, it's, it's, right. but there are people I think that chef AJ works with, and I have worked with a few that are truly addicted that the, once they see it, they have to have it, you know, and it's, they really, really do struggle. And my heart goes out to them. And I, you know, I am not a psychologist and I do encourage them to work with psychologists, but I try to educate them around, okay, if you do it, if you indulge in it. Do it. Pay attention to how you feel when you're doing it. Tune in. Like Dr. Judd Brewer talks about this a lot, and I, I think mm -hmm. he's wonderful too. Um, you know, tune in. What's going on? How does that feel while I'm eating it? Does it really taste good? And a lot of times they realize they may have had a taste for it before, but once they start eating more healthfully, they don't really have the same taste for it. So, And then how do you feel after you ate it? Well, in, in addition to perhaps feeling sick, there's also guilt affiliated with it. You know, so... Sometimes tuning in when they are indulging in those foods um, helps them to make a better choice next time. But there are definitely people who struggle and they'll see the food and it, it's their trigger food, whatever it is. I mean, I personally can't relate to this. I've never had a food addiction. Um, my mother did when I was growing up. And so I watched her struggle all of her life. She was a yo-yo dieter, mm -hmm. but I never had that. And so it's really hard for me. There's nothing in my house that's not food. There's nothing. I mean, there are richer foods in my house. Like uh, my son makes his own nut butter, you know, and I look at that and I go, wow, you know, some of the things he eats. I mean, he's 17 years old. He's the bean pole and he can eat whatever he wants. Sometimes I just sit there and stare at him. He's eating like two pieces of bread with Japanese sweet potato, avocado, nut mm -hmm. butter, like just these really rich indulgences. And I look at that as a menopausal woman. I've never had a weight problem, but I also know if I started eating that highly caloric food, I probably would start to gain weight. And it's not in my best interest. So it doesn't even, it's not that it's not food and it doesn't appeal to me. It's that, well, I like eating my Japanese sweet potatoes in my salad, you know? So I can do that very, I've tried to work with clients around that, but some of my clients, and I will say, when I think about this, it's usually the women in all honesty, mm -hmm. the men have to be an easier time saying, you know, no, like what you said. But I think a lot of times these women, they're so tuned into the people pleasing aspect. If everyone's eating the pizza or whatever it is, they want to do it too, just because the pressure's on them. So I don't know. I, I mean, I, I see your point. I think it's very valid. 
I think it really depends on who the person is and what their own limitations are. Yeah, and I think that's 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 true of coaching across the board. Is that the ultimate, um, you know, uh, uh, measure of whether something's working is whether it's working, right? Right, as exactly. a, as opposed to the, well, this is my theoretical construct, right? Um, you know, so I, I will say I think that a lot of uh, things that we think of as addictions are again opportunities for a very a very deep healing. And my uh, my teacher in this area is someone I haven't met yet, uh, Dr. Gabor Mate, who who uh-huh. talks. Oh, he's amazing. You, he was on. Uh, if you listen to Rich Roll, uh-huh. he was on a Rich Roll podcast. His last name is spelled M A T E, like checkmate. I will um, he does. Um, he talks about addiction as a a neural adaptation of the brain to adverse childhood experiences to trauma, to lack of love, to, to the same sort of, you know, like all of us have adverse childhood experiences because we aren't growing up in a hunter-gatherer tribe, right? Because right. like living in this society with two stressed parents, and when we were growing up, it was probably like, you know, mom was at home. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, but now everyone's working. Um, right. That the, the, the addiction is a... Uh, a maladaptation to a uh, an actual need, um, and so when you know, so so when we have this, when we have these addictions, that, that and, and I'm not saying that they're not neurologically based because everything in the brain is neurologically based, but it's not it's not necessarily that you have a gene for addiction, right? right? In the right. same way that we don't have a gene for heart disease, so much as a a family cookbook. Exactly. Heart disease, which makes it look hereditary. Yes, totally. Um, so we're going. We're after after I think thirty three minutes. Um, just quickly, what do you do about the culture? The culture can be difficult to navigate too. I mean, I'm Jewish, um, and is I think you're Jewish, yes. Mm-hmm. And so you know, a lot of the Jewish holidays are around foods that are not so healthy. So in our house, we have just said Passover means something different to us, you know, and we eat different foods than everyone else eats. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know, when you're with extended family, that can be a little trickier. But again, it comes down to what is your commitment level? What is your comfort level? For some people, they can indulge on those special holidays or special occasions and then go right back to what they were doing before. Will that hurt them? Probably not. You know, in most cases, it depends on their situation, of course. But um, for a lot of people, they can't. And so, you know, I I start talking to them about those situations, like the holidays, for example, well in advance, and we come up with strategies. I always encourage people, if you're inviting people to your home, make sure that you have healthy offerings that you can eat and share with everyone. And if you're going to someone else's home, talk to them in advance, explain, you know, I don't eat meat, I don't eat dairy. And uh, is it okay if I bring a casserole for everyone to enjoy? You know, so there are ways of navigating it, and and it doesn't have to be about insulting people, mm-hmm. but just explaining and doing while you know going along. Hey, I'm trying this new diet; it's working really well for me. I'd like to stick to it. I hope it's not a problem for you. It's probably not going to work, but we'll see. That sort of strategy seems to help too. Great, great. And of course, there are um, you know religions and cultures where every Sunday is yeah. a holiday. Um, right. So one, you know, one of the things I do there, and I learned this from my business partner, Josh Lajani, who grew up 
in a Cajun Louisiana family um, mm-hmm. is if you just go back three generations, if you go back to great grandma, your tradition was whole food plant based, right? So not true. not vegan, but whole foods, peasant foods, right? Unless you were like some some British lord, nice. right? And you're, you know, descended from people eating like Henry VIII, your family was eating largely plants, the recipes, you know, and what you think of as your regular diet, you know, your Sunday meals were special occasions. They were Christmas, they were Easter, uh, they were weddings and they were funerals. They were, you know, they were four times a year you'd have the, the ham. Exactly. Right. So, so, get, so getting so instead of like fi- having them fight against their tradition, having them drill down into what their tradition really was before it was distorted by by a capitalist food system. I love that. That's so true. I mean, honestly, when you look at the native diet of so many different cultures around the world, it really is clean, whole, healthy foods. And we've gotten so far away from that. You know, I, I've been saying I'm, I'm hearing and I don't know if you are. And I have a lot of physician friends who are telling me that people in this COVID lockdown era have been losing weight. And one of the reasons they're losing weight is they're not eating so much restaurant food. Mm, they're cooking at home. They're cooking at home. And even if they cook at home and they're cooking a little more rich than, you know, we, we, um, they're still losing weight. I think, I think in our country and our culture, we tend to view food in particular eating out as recreation. It's not so much about nourishment or, you know, it's, it's just always recreation. And so coming back around to what you were saying, you know, when it is a, a, a cultural celebration or religious celebration, coming back to what food used to be. Right. Well, there's no there's no I don't care how much you want to make your food delicious. There's no way you're going to use as much butter as a restaurant will. Never, never. And, and, you know, like we, I'll, I'll talk to people and they say, oh, there was no oil in that. And I'm going, yeah. are you kidding? seriously? We've just become so accustomed to it that that tastes normal to us. But you're right. I mean, there's no way we would cook like that for ourselves. Right. All right. Final thing. Uh, fond memories of food, childhood foods. How do you help people with that? Oh, boy. Yeah, that's a tough one. Um I guess what I do is I say to them, you know, I think it's great that you have that association. Look, I do. I mean, I remember chip witches were a thing when I was growing up, and I used uh-huh. to love them, two cookies with ice cream in between. Uh-huh. I have a lot of those fond associations. But again, I use healthier things now. So I can make an ice cream sandwich out of two oatmeal raisin cookies, you know, and, and my banana ice cream. So I try to find healthy alternatives, especially when we're talking about treats for kids. There are so many amazing things you can do with chocolate pudding out of avocados or out of sweet potatoes that tastes amazing. Um, I mean, there's so many different treats. And in fact, that's how I got my kids on board first was, you know, I was a chocoholic. And so I wanted to get my kids on board that this was a healthy way of eating that could not, that wasn't necessarily would make them feel deprived. So I started off buying Chef AJ's book on, on processed mm-hmm. and making the truffles, the raw brownies. Uh-huh. And that was the first thing I gave them. And they, of course they love it. It's delicious cocoa powder, walnuts. I mean, what's not to love about that. So, um, so just giving people healthier alternatives, showing them that you can still have these really rich, indulgent foods. Dr. Furman's got some great recipes for really healthy, indulgent treats. So showing people that it doesn't necessarily have to mean 
deprivation that you can still have fond memories just built around healthier foods. Awesome. Awesome. I think that's a wrap. Tell, tell us before you go how people can find you. Um, you have an online presence. that uh... I do. So I have a, a website is eatwell-daywell.com. Right, I'm going I'm I'm to repeat that um, because you're cutting out a little bit on Skype. So it's eatwell-staywell.com. Right. And then I have a Facebook page of the same name. And I have I am healthy veg coach on Instagram and Twitter. All right. So and 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 you have on your website you have what, recipes and and tips and things. I, I, yeah, I'm not a recipe developer, but I do have recipes. I have resources. I have some of my favorite things like cookbooks and websites and movies and those sorts of things, cooking equipment. Um, so yeah, right. I mean there's some resources there. Great. All right. Well, thank you so much, Sharon. I really uh, got a lot out of our conversation and it was just, it was great to have an excuse to, uh, to talk face to face again. Absolutely, Howard. Always a pleasure talking with you and thank you for the opportunity. All right. Be well. You too. Take care. I hope you found that helpful. So if you'd like to become a health coach, or maybe you already are a health coach and you'd like some additional training and more skills, or perhaps you're a health professional, a doctor, nurse, dietitian, etc., who would like to be able to influence your patients more effectively, again, check it out, wellstartcoach.com. All right, have a great day. <laughs>